0: Welcome to the Glam International Podcast. This podcast series will help galleries, libraries, archives, and museums professionals in BC reflect on what it means to be an informed citizen with a global perspective. Through this podcast series, we will interview innovators, disruptors, and thinkers that help to frame the work we do in an international context. I'm your host, Leah Patterson. I'm the Engagement Coordinator at the BCMA. Thanks for joining us today. Some of you are likely familiar with the James Webb Space Telescope images that received global news coverage in mid July 2022 when the telescope's first full color images were released to the public. Even since this podcast was recorded on July 25th, the news continues to pour in from the data and images being collected, and new revelations in space continue to capture the imagination. Today, we talked to Marley Leacock, astronomer at the H.R. McMillan Space Center in Vancouver. Marley is a graduate from UBC, has completed a research project with the Dunlap Institute at the University of Toronto, and has volunteered teaching physics concepts to local girl guide groups with the Physics and Astronomy Department at UBC. Prior to working at the HR McMillan Space Center, she worked with UBC to deliver science, engineering, and technology curriculum in person and online using innovative means to promote STEM to children. On to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I have a fantastic guest lined up for today. We're going to talk about the James Webb Telescope with Marley Leacock, astronomer at the H.R. Macmillan Space Center. Hi, Marley. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Nice to be talking with you today about a really fantastic uh, development in space science.
0: Yes, I'm so excited for this conversation. If you could start by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, that would be a great start.
1: Perfect. Okay. So my name's Marley. I am the astronomer here at the H.R. Macmillan Space Center. And what that means is that I don't necessarily really do much looking through telescopes, though we have one at our observatory. Uh, What I do is help make sure that all of the curriculum and information and activities we put forward are scientifically accurate. So I try to stay on top of new developments in space science and make sure that we, you know, get that out to the public in an accurate and as fun possible way.
0: Awesome. And the HR McMillan Space Center, can you tell us a bit about what the organization is like, how people interact with it? where it is and things like that. Yeah.
1: So we are in Kitsilano in Vancouver, just 15 minute walk, I think from the beach and close to the downtown area. And uh, most people lovingly refer to us as the planetarium, even though that is not our name, but we do have a very big, large dome where we do show films and relating to space science and different planetarium shows, or as we call it, the star theater. Uh, We opened up in 1968, back when space was really, really big uh, and quite a large development was happening in the field of space science and at that time it was only the theater and then we installed an exhibit gallery and a new demonstration theater in 1997. And what we focus on are, is a lot of community outreach. We want to make people curious and we want the community to explore and ask questions in a safe environment. For us, there are no silly questions you can ask. Um, everything is a great point of discussion and a great jumping off point for discussing space science and what is happening uh, with the stars above us. And we really live by the idea that space is for everyone. It's, we all see the same stars. so. Every members of the community are welcome to come and ask questions and enjoy uh, a show in the Star Theater, a tour through the Cosmic Courtyard where we have different you know, booths set up, little exhibits set up about various different things from moons to planets to exoplanets to the space station uh, and see a demonstration in our Ground Station Canada Theater about rocket science or gravity or you know, anything kind of under the, under the stars as it is.
0: I love that you say there's no, uh, no silly questions and like the stars are for everyone. Cause as a person with no science background, I have a very hard time wrapping my brain around a lot of the concepts that come out of space discoveries and space science um, so I love that there's a place for people like, like me to go and ask questions and find things out right in Vancouver, which is amazing. So I love, I love that you said there's no, no stupid questions. because
1: No, there's like, none. I mean, people I'm ask smart. me a lot. It's so hard. People ask me questions a lot and you know, they're, they're scared that it's silly or, I'll, you know, I won't answer them, but there's not really a silly question. I know what I know because I went to school for it, right? I graduated uh, from the University of British Columbia with a bachelor's in science, um, majoring in astronomy. So I learned, you know, all of the math and all the physics and all of like the nitty gritty details of it. And you don't need to know the nitty gritty details to enjoy space and to learn about it. And so that's kind of um, my view on it, at least, is you can enjoy it without needing to know the math and you can learn about it without needing to know the math. And that's kind of where we we sit. And we'll have programs, you know, for school age children where you know, we're not going to explain university physics to them, but then we'll have uh, programs for, you know, adults and people who may know more, where if you want to learn about the physics behind it, you can ask me questions for sure. Um, But we try to have a baseline level that everyone can enjoy regardless of age or experience uh, with space and the science behind it
0: today we're so lucky to have you because we're going to talk about the james webb space telescope which you know i'm i'm not super sure about the date so maybe you can help me out with some of the background information (laughs) yeah only a couple weeks ago uh july 2022 uh they released some of the first images from the james webb space telescope which has struck I think, accord with the public, I think people got really excited about this. So I'm happy to have you to chat about it. So, if you can give us some background about the James Webb Space Telescope, which I will shorten to probably the telescope from now
1: on. (laughs) That's (laughs)
0: a big name.
1: Fair Um, enough. It's very long.
0: It's very long. So, if you could just tell us a bit about the telescope. And I know the Canadian Space Agency was involved, but unfortunately, during the live broadcasting where they were showing all these images, the, the space center in Montreal kind of dropped out of the live feed. So we didn't actually yeah. get to talk with their um, their people about the Canadian Space Agency involvement, which is a bit of a bummer. So I'm hoping you can fill me in on that.
1: Uh, of course. So uh, the telescope or web, as it's known as as well, Um, It actually was in development for a very long time. Work on it began over 30 years ago, uh, and it was being developed as the next major mission beyond Hubble or the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a telescope we're all more familiar with, right? It sends back, you know, beautiful images in the optical uh, wavelength, which is how our eyes see. So we were already thinking about how are we going to see beyond what Hubble can do. And Hubble used to be uh, an ultraviolet optical infrared telescope. So it saw how our eyes saw, but also saw in two other sections of the electromagnetic spectrum, Uh, the infrared, which is like a heat uh, vision type is a, a good way to explain it and ultraviolet, which is Like the UV rays that come off the sun that give you a sunburn. Uh, It can see those rays uh, is how Hubble worked. But even though it was an IR telescope, an infrared telescope, it didn't have the same seeing abilities that Webb does. Webb is much, much more powerful in that uh, region than Hubble ever was. And the development really was we wanted something to go beyond. We were, in a sense, limited by Hubble. And we did have other infrared telescopes before. We had the Spitzer Space Telescope, which was a different infrared telescope that worked really well for its time. It was actually only recently decommissioned and given the mission end. I was nowhere near uh, the power of web. And in fact, one of the engineering images that came out of web, they did a side-by-side comparison of the Spitzer image of the same location and the web image. And you can see just the jump in Advancement and clarity uh, in the images. So, Web's been around for a very long time. Its development has been around for a very long time, and it only launched uh, in December 25th of 2021. So, it took a very long time from conception to actual development because we had to make a lot of engineering jumps in, and jumps in technology to be able to build it. Uh, one of those that's most obvious is its mirror, that like gorgeous hexagon, the gold mirror, its primary mirror. It's six and a half meters in diameter. It's it's pretty big uh, as telescopes go. Uh, It needs to be large uh, to be able to collect the amount of light it wants to be able to collect. The bigger your dish is on a telescope, the more light you're going to be able to grab in and focus on. But because it's so big, uh, we had to figure out a way to get it to space, right? That is a very large mirror. And so we had to come up with a way to either make the rocket bigger to hold it or fold up the mirror. And they went with the folding up the mirror option. So that all those segments, it's 18 different segments are actually able to fold in, in a specific origami-esque fashion. And it was able to fold up into the payload capsule of the rocket, the Ariane 5 rocket uh, and launch it to space. And it's not uh, a lone collaboration. Something of this size really needs an international collaboration. And so WEB is an international collaboration between three space, space agencies. We have uh, NASA, the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. And all agencies you know, were involved in different ways throughout the project. Uh, The science themes of Webb are huge. It really, we can literally learn about the very beginnings of the universe up until what we currently see in our own solar system. And so their science themes are broken down into four different sections. The early universe, uh, looking at galaxies over time, stellar life cycles and other worlds. And those other worlds are, you know, exoplanets, which is very, very exciting. And the Canadian involvement really starts to narrow in on that other worlds section. So there are four, five-ish, they say four uh, instruments on web. And the one that Canada, the Canadian Space Agency provided is the fine guidance sensor slash the near infrared imager and slitless spectrograph or NEARIS. And this is why I said four slash five because FGS and NEARIS are in the same compartment, but they do two different things. So four slash five, uh, the fine guidance center, FGS, just allows Webb to point precisely so that it can take images of the desired object, uh, whatever scientists want to look at. And so a lot of those engineering images, some of them came from uh, the fine guidance sensor as it was taking images to make sure it was aligned properly. Nearest is used to investigate first light detection. So the first light from the universe and then falls into exoplanet detection and characterization and exoplanet spectroscopy. So this is kind of what we missed when their when their stream went down, is that Nearest was able to detect water signatures and evidence for clouds and haze in the atmosphere of an exoplanet that's orbiting a star like our sun. Uh, this exoplanet is named WASP-96b, and it's very, very far away, uh, 1,150 light years away. So it takes light 1,150 years to get from that planet to us. And Nearest was able to look at the system for 6.4 hours. And in that 6.4 hours, it, you know, so much information came back about what is contained in that exoplanet's atmosphere. That's the large uh, Canadian involvement that we missed. And those are the two instruments that Canada uh, provided in building the telescope.
0: So when you say exoplanet, what do you mean? Uh,
1: an exoplanet is a planet that is outside of our solar system. So the, the right word word is an exosolar planet, but that's just too long. And so it's been shortened <laughs> to exoplanet. So it's a planet that orbits a star that is not our sun.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. There's so much information coming from this telescope. I feel like as you're talking, I'm like, wow, wow. Wow. Like there's more facts <laughs> and more facts. So I wonder for you personally, like, why is this space telescope so important and so newsworthy? Cause it really did capture the news for quite a while.
1: Uh, yeah. And I expect that it will, it will continue to do so. Um, just the amount of discoveries that are possible uh, by using this telescope is what's exciting. It is such a feat of engineering and a feat of technology and such a jump um, in our abilities to explore our own universe that I, I think it's it's just phenomenal. It's kind of hard for me to explain the excitement. It's just if I were just to be able to like clap for a thousand years, I think that would kind of <laughs> uh, explain it. But for me personally, the most exciting part about Webb's mission is the galaxies part. So I love galaxies. I find them very interesting. They're kind of my bread and butter, I guess. but, what most exciting about web is that we don't know how galaxies end, right? We see them as they are now. But with web, we can get a better idea of how they start. We can look back in time, so to speak, and see the very beginnings of those galaxies. And by comparing the very beginnings with what we see now, that can help us figure out how they end. So how galaxies change over time, we can learn to anticipate how they might change over time going looking ahead. Uh, and how we can expect them to change and evolve uh, as they live out their lives. And that's that's the most exciting part, I think for me.
0: Yeah, I think there was something someone said in one of the press conferences and they said, this space telescope is going to be able to provide us answers to questions we don't even know how to ask yet. Yeah. Uh, And I was like, that's kind of like scary, but so exciting that we don't even know how to ask the questions that the data from this telescope could actually give us.
1: So we had a bunch of questions from Hubble, right? We saw what Hubble was able to see, but you know, there's so many more wavelengths of light and how they work. So Hubble, you know, being an op- primarily optical telescope, how our eyes see the light from gas and dust is blocked, right? We see clouds and, and the shadows of them blocking our view of anything behind. And so it becomes, well, what's behind all that stuff, right? Let's build a telescope that can see behind that. And with Webb, we can, uh, we can finally see, you know, behind large nebula clouds and stuff like that. And we can see stars beginning to form, but, you know, that's only going to open more questions. You know, we've gotten a peek behind the door, but now we need to explore what's behind that door. Right. And so that's just going to, it's going to launch a whole new, like kind of not a Renaissance, but a new age of, of astronomy.
0: I would love to chat with you at least about two of the images uh, that came back. The first one is Webb's first deep field image. And for anyone who uh, I'm going to put the links in the show notes to get People to these pictures on the Web Telescope website. But this is the one that's it's very, I want to say like chaotic, but it <laughs> yeah. looks like it has so many uh stars and it it honestly looks like sprinkles and sparkles on a black backdrop, is really if if you're not a scientist, that's the picture we're looking at.
1: <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah.
0: And someone was saying in one of the broadcasts that. To give a sense of the scale of the image, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that speck of sand is what you're looking at in this image. That's the field of view of just this picture. Mm -hmm. So it's just the tiniest part of the universe.
1: It's a very, very uh, small glimpse into the universe for sure. Um, It's very hard to get a sense of scale. I I find even uh, when it comes to space because we are working on such a large scale that numbers stop meaning anything. Yes. Right. So I could tell you how far away in kilometers this is, and it would mean nothing. It's an insane. Like It's an absolute ridiculous distance. Um, And so in astronomy, we've really start to talk about things in light years. So uh, how long it would take light to travel to us, because we know that light only moves at a set speed. We know how fast that is. And so if we can think about things in terms of how long it will take light to come. So the cluster that we're looking at in this image it is from 4.6 billion years ago. So it took light 4.6 billion years to get to us. And like the length of time that image is from is like how long our solar, our solar system, sorry, took to form.
0: Jeez, okay.
1: Uh- <laughs> I don't know if that helped or not.
0: <laughs> it, I'm sure it does. Like it's, it's one of those things where you say, you know, it's hard. Not only do numbers sort of stop meaning something at this, this size and scale, but because- it's light traveling. It's also my brain is like, so it's time travel. Like this picture is time travel.
1: It kind of is. Yeah. In a way it's the kind of the closest we'll get so far to time travel. Um, we're looking at this cluster as it was when our solar system was just starting to form. So very, very long time ago, and it may have changed completely. Um, if we were to look at it in another 4.6 billion years, we may not have the same image.
0: Right. I think it's so interesting. Like these pictures are they're one very beautiful visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure as a person who actually knows maybe what they're looking at, it's just exciting as a scientific discovery. I think that's like the best part about these pictures for me is that there's like something here for everyone to look at, no matter if you know anything or nothing about science.
1: Oh um, yes. Agreed.
0: They're so cool. The other one I really wanted to talk to you about was it's called the cosmic cliffs in Karina. Mm-hmm. And it's, Again, I was drawn to this one because visually it's so beautiful and it has these really orange, like wispy. To me, it looks like mountains. And it also looks like what I imagine like a very soft Grand Canyon might look like uh, (laughs) with the sky above it. But this is in the universe and, and this is a nebula. So can you talk to us about maybe what a nebula is, what we're learning from this picture, why this picture is important?
1: So a nebula um, itself is just uh, a collection of gas and dust. It's, It's a very broad word. And we see nebulae in many different contexts. So sometimes we see them like we see them in this image, the Carina nebula. It's like a large interstellar cloud you know, star forming and many objects behind it. And other times we see them like they do in um, the other web image of the Southern Ring Nebula, where that nebula is the result of a dying star. So gas has been ejected from a dying star. That is also a nebula. It's much smaller and looks very different from what we see in the Korean Nebula, but they are both nebulae, just a collection of gas and dust is all it is. Uh, but this one in particular just shows uh, more of a stellar nursery. So in this image, the Karina Nebula, we when we first looked at it with Hubble, a lot of the stars that were, are viewable now were completely blocked by the gas and dust. But luckily for us, using an infrared telescope, that light is not blocked by gas and dust. So we are able to get a peek at the stars that are forming inside of this nebula. And it would be right to kind of call them, quote unquote, mountains uh, when you're looking at. uh, The scale of this image is immense. The tallest mountains that you see in the image are seven light years high. So it takes light seven years to get from the base to the peak of some of the mountains in this image. So it is a very grand cloud of gas and dust and a grand uh, star forming region. And this image was picked kind of to highlight one of Webb's areas of interest, the stellar birth and process of star formation, right? So in this one, we can see, you know, different stars being formed at different points of their formation, but also uh, looking at the cavity of the nebula itself. The cavity is the blue part, kind of the edge of the nebula. And as that, cavity expands as it you know, moves outward and the gas is compressed and pushed into itself, it can trigger star formation. So if any of that gas or dust is like kind of unstable and it's hit by these, this cavity as it's compressed down, that increase in pressure will cause the material to collapse and form a star in on itself. And so as it expands and moves and those Radiation and stellar winds push on the orangey parts of the image and push them into each other. You end up getting uh, triggering star formation. But a large question that this you know tries to highlight and helps us to learn more about is the relationship between star formation and this type of triggering mechanism—the compression of. The gas and dust as it's being kind of blown around in a way. As that star formation is triggered, the star making material, the gas and the dust, is kind of eroded away. So the question that comes out of this image, and what this image tries to highlight and answer as well or help answer is Is there a sweet spot, right, of a certain number of stars that can form in a region like this, or a certain number of stars that are a certain size can form before all of that material is kind of blown away and you know, no longer able to trigger star formation in this way.
0: I'm not asking a whole lot of scientific questions over here in my apartment. In Nineveh, <laughs> but um, I, I never really thought how is a star form? Because if you imagine you go to space and you see like, you know, astronauts floating around, but then I don't think how do, how does material get pushed together in a way that creates the things that we see? And I think that's so interesting to hear that, like, how this gas and this dust compresses and moves and that that movement is enough to, to create stars.
1: Eventually. Yeah. Over time. Yeah. And you need like a fair bit of energy to do it, but there's so much out there, right. That it can, can trigger star formation, but will it eventually, you know, be its own end (laughs) is, is a big question of, of this in this particular region.
0: So this is a lot of information. Telescope launched in December, We're in July and we have already these five spectacular images, a number of graphs, I'm sure so much more data that the public hasn't seen yet or been told about yet. And they were saying, you know, it only took five days for these images to be prepared for public consumption. The Space Center is so lucky to have you because that you said that's your job is to keep up and make sure that the programming is all up to date And I wonder, like, how are we going to keep science centers and related organizations up to date with the amount of information that's going to come from this telescope? I can say it seems like it would be very important to do so. (laughs) Um, But if that's the rate of information coming at us, uh, how are we going to keep up with this?
1: No, it's, it's a big task. I mean, going back to the web's first deep field image, like that image that it took where we see all those different lights are, are actually mostly galaxies, not, not stars. Um, that was they took a look at the sky for 12 hours to get this image, whereas Hubble's deep field, one of its uh, deep field images, took weeks to get uh that the level that it got. So it is coming out as a, at a very rapid pace, and so keeping up is you know we unfortunately we can't cover everything that the telescope will look at though we can try and this feels i do think like so much at one time because it was geared towards the public right there will be lots of scientific information that comes out that will not be geared Towards the public. I will find it very interesting, but that does not mean uh, <laughs> that the public will. But in terms of keeping up, you know, we here at the Space Center, we do a bi-weekly show, myself and my coworker called Ask an Astronomer, where we discuss news in space that may be interesting to the public. And new discoveries are a part of that, right? New things that we find of interest that we think may be interest to the public are part of that. And research from web will change our understanding of things. And so staying up to date on the newer findings once they you know become whether well, or not accepted or still up to debate in the scientific community is is a process. It's not an immediate thing, right? So the scientific process, papers are published, papers are reviewed, things change as we learn more. So these new discoveries that come up may not become solidified facts. There will be debate about what Webb will discover, but that's part of the fun, right? You know, giving the public here's this you know idea that we may think Be the answer, but here's another idea that we're not sure about. And ultimately, it will, you know, help us to, you know, kind of change our programs in a way. So we change our content at the Space Center monthly. Next year, we're planning to look at the four different science aspects of WEB uh, just because it's such a huge project. So each we have four months, each one devoted to one of Webb's different scientific objectives. And so that comes kind of later because hopefully within a year things may have you know settled down just a little bit and they won't spit out five images in one day. Um, <laughs> and we'll, we'll be able to you know take the time to to develop programming. And it's a big endeavor to stay up to date with the science, but one that's achievable, in a way because the debate is, is part of the fun in, in discovering the science, uh, I think, anyway. So we can use that to our advantage.
0: And does the Space Center have plans to incorporate these images? Uh, I mean, you said you're, you're always updating things, but um, I mean, how many of these pictures are you using in the galleries soon or putting into place in the next couple of weeks just based on these discoveries?
1: Currently, I think actually the Karina Nebula is already in our shows in the Star Theater. So, we, at the end of our shows, we have an in the news section, where you know we leave time at the end to discuss you know things that are happening in the news that are related to the programming or not. Because at the end of the shows, you can ask kind of any question you'd like, and so we try to have the uh, up to date images available. And so the Korean Nebula image is already loaded into into the system, um, and so that is already ready to go for public to view after at the end of a show and it looks very very cool (laughs) very (laughs) amazing because it's a a circular dome and so it's like the nebula is just all around you like you're in it and it's just it's a very very effective it's very a whole different perspective seeing it inside of our theater uh so that's already incorporated and then on my end at least um you know we've we're going through our school programming and updating them not just you know to include web information, but also you know the advancements made by Perseverance on Mars and and changing that. So hopefully those will be uh, good to go. But in the gallery space, we have a demonstration set up in in the Cosmic Courtyard that is a different visualization or activity uh, for people to do for the public to do, and they often relate to whatever our theme of the month is. So I think for August, we're coming up, we're in exoplanets for August. And so the theme of the month for August, uh, the little demonstration deals with exoplanets. But uh, what we've done with the team of interpreters that we have is they are also all uh, up to date with Webb's uh, advancements because here at the Space Center, we hired just a lot of space nerds. And so everyone is already excited about it. And so it's a very easy thing to relate it back back to web and back to the science that is going on because we're already, the people that work here are up to date, even if our visuals aren't.
0: And I wonder, uh, I wanted to give you a couple minutes to nerd out on whatever awesome, cool thing that came out of this web press conference and release that maybe hasn't gotten a lot of media attention or hasn't been talked about much that you are just so stoked on. I'm happy to open the floor (laughs) <laughs> Marley, nerd out if you want
1: to. Nerd out. Uh, so I guess the two that I love the most, Webb's Deep Field, of course, is just, there is a treasure trove of information, that one picture. It is, I mean, I watched the release with my grandparents who were who are both in their 80s and my mother, like none of them uh, really are into the uh, extreme science nerding but uh, they did watch it with me and when that image was shown the first deep deep field image uh, they were like wow amazing that's so cool and I was like listen you don't even know yet exactly what this is showing Uh, just that image you can see you know the actual cluster itself is the odd white elliptical galaxies kind of in the center underneath of uh, the spiky star, uh, which is uh, a star in the foreground. that's very bright. But that cluster is actually bending the light of the, uh, the galaxies behind it uh, due to its gravity. And so you, you get to s- you see all these rings, these stretched out galaxies because their light has been bent in those way. And they're actually behind the galaxies in the foreground. So they've been bent and magnified and we're able to study. And some of those arcs that you're seeing are actually the same galaxy, but mirrored like a mirror image of itself, which is just, I, is so cool. I love everything about it. And that's just a result um, of the lensing. And also in this image is the oldest galaxy that we've ever imaged. I think that it still currently holds the record. It's in the image itself. It's a tiny, tiny red speck. Um, and I'll get the link to you so you can put it in in the show notes so everyone can kind of see what it is. And it is the oldest galaxy we've been able to image and the galaxy itself is from 300 million years after the big bang. So it's, a, it's so young, it's a little baby and it looks so it's a blob, right? We can't really, it doesn't look like anything to a public eye, but the information, the fact that we're able to see that far back is just mind blowing. So cool. Um, but basically it's from 13.5 billion years ago. Like our star, our sun wasn't even, it wasn't even a cloud yet. Like it was, just not even there. And now we have an image of a galaxy from that time, which is just phenomenal. And the other image that I love dearly, it is now my phone wallpaper. It will become my desktop wallpaper <laughs> is the image of Stefan Stevens Quintet, which is the image of the five galaxies uh, scene. And two of them are merging, which is very cool. Uh, I remember my mom was like, where's the fifth one? And I had to be like, no, it's here. There's two, they're coming together. Uh, you could see the gas uh, being moved around. And it's a grouping of these five galaxies and it shows a galactic merger. It shows outflows being driven by a black hole in one of the galaxies. And it's just a visually beautiful Image and it's also known as the Hickson Compact Group, which I think is named for one of my favorite professors at UBC. I think he discovered uh, this compact group. Uh, Shout out to Paul Hickson. I'm pretty sure that's his. Yep, Paul Hickson. And it's just a gorgeous image, but it was imaged twice. And so this is uh, something that they didn't really do much at the press conference is that a lot of these images. Uh, were taken with two different instruments. So not all of the instruments on board web see in the same wavelength. They overlap, but some are better suited to different wavelengths of infrared light. And so the uh, Stevens Quintet image was also taken with uh, the MIRI instrument, which is a mid-infrared instrument. So just a different, a different section of light. And once you look at it in MIRI, it shows the dust in those galaxies. So the image that they show from, which is from near cam, which is a near infrared camera, uh, shows, you know, the light and everything, but Miri shows the dust, like mostly just, uh, the dust that you're able to see. Uh, but with Miri, you can see where the dust is. You can see, you know, how the dust is moving from those two galaxies that are colliding, but you can also see the light, uh, the energy coming out of this uh, active galactic nucleus, this, you know, very active black hole that's accreting matter and spitting it out and, you know, large jets and stuff. What the energy is, is just uh, like, it's equivalent to 40 billion suns of energy, just like coming out of this uh, black hole and being able to see it is amazing. I, I love AGN. I love uh, galaxies and stuff. So this is It's just so cool. It's such a beautiful image and I love it. So if you're able to check out the links, which I I will send you uh, to see them in the two different instrument modes, it's just, it's a whole new picture, essentially a whole new image you're looking at.
0: Yeah. I mean, we were chatting briefly before we started recording and I was saying the webtelescope.org website is incredible. Yes. Um, It has so much information. I recommend digesting it a bit at a time if you are not a science nerd. I am not you know <laughs> um, taken in small doses, but it's incredible. And they offer you full resolution images of all of these, these images that have been taken.
1: And zoomable as well.
0: Them, zoom in them. Yeah. It's incredible. Mm. The amount of stuff they've provided
1: for the it's public. so much data. It's so- I accidentally downloaded, uh the, when I was looking at images, I accidentally downloaded the data for um, the image they took of Jupiter for the commissioning report. And it, nearly maxed out the storage I had left on my work computer which is a lot of storage so it was I'd immediately delete it all but it is it is yeah it is an incredible amount of information in these in these images
0: Marley thank you so much for coming to nerd out with us I of course I love
1: any opportunity to nerd out so (laughs) was good (laughs)
0: Thank you. Thank you. And as uh, as we mentioned, we'll make sure to put the links in the show notes for all the stuff we've talked about today. Of course. Um, and some extra details if anyone wants to read up on the science or or learn more than just looking at the pictures like I do. Um,
1: <laughs> but yeah. Again, I also Oh, I, oh, I forgot oh, to mention. I ahead. also write um, blog posts for the Space Center about the usually tied to the theme of the month, but I did write two about web. So the background of the telescope itself and a briefing on the science. So I could also provide those, which I just took the information from the web web website, but made it make more sense um, for the general public. So I'll include those as well for those who may not know about web and want to learn more about the telescope itself and what science it will be doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And if you're in the Vancouver region, of course, you should stop in and visit the HR McMillan Space Center. Go visit Marley, go have a conversation with an astronomer, take advantage of their amazing programming. So uh, if you're there, visit. I will be visiting next time I'm in Vancouver.
1: Yay. Come say hi.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I will do that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marley. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really loved being here. Mm -hmm.
0: a huge thank you to Marley for joining us on the podcast. As we mentioned, we'll be adding lots of links to the show notes to help you navigate all the news and images from web. And we encourage you to explore all of this great information at your fingertips. As always, you can subscribe to the BCMA podcast. This will keep you up to date on all of our series. Until next time.